you can turn it down a little bit. Okay, I love this soundtrack. I'll talk about it in a second. Welcome here today. We're finishing up our series on being images of God. In, in the last little while, we've been listening to a lot of movie soundtracks in our household. E, uh, Micah, who's over there by his mom, there he is, has made this awesome playlist on YouTube that we've been, and it's filling up with all of the most epic soundtracks imaginable. So it, it, it's, 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 it's incredible. So we've got some real faves like the Dark Knight trilogy, anything by Hans Zimmer pretty much, uh, Inception, Monsters, Inc., Toy Story. But the one I can't get enough of and the boys mock me all the time is the one, unbelievably, it's for a game. The Battlefield 1 trailer. Listen to it. Turn it up a little bit. Wow. Every time it comes on the house, I say, man, I love this song. The boys hate it now. They're like, let me guess, Dad. You love this song. I'm like, yes, I love this song. There's just nothing better than cleaning off the dishes after dinner to the sweeping theme of Man of Steel or something like that, you know, something by John Williams or, you know, it's like it's become like the, the, the soundtrack of our of, of our lives. I was thinking about how in this last while, as we've been exploring this series on being images of God, it's kind of like we've been playing multiple soundtracks to God's epic story. But today I want to talk about the movie trailer itself, the, the, you know, the movie preview, the, the movie trailer. These movie trailers, game trailers, book trailers, they're a huge business today. And we all have had, you know, we've all seen them in, in some way. Uh, they're, they're set to beautifully composed music. Um, there's movie trailers and there's game trailers that feature sneak peeks of an upcoming feature. And game trailers, actually, they'll often include actual gameplay. Like, you actually get to see what it's like. And, and they even have all the cool, you know, detail some of the cool uh, downloadable content, which all the cool kids know is called what? None of you are cool. <laughs> Neither am I. It's called DLC, apparently, which took me a while to figure out stands for downloadable content. There you go. But product launches are also getting into the, into the, the trailer biz, Right? You think of it as advertising, but often it's, it's like a trailer of what's to come, and it's a product launch. And my absolute favorite right now is from Samsung, and I wanted to show you the short version right now. Here it is. Turn it up. And I think it's going to be a long, long time Till the touchdown brings me round again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home Doesn't that make you just want to fly? You know, do the impossible to achieve what's never been done. What are trailers designed for? I'd love to hear from you. From you. Like, what are these previews, these trailers, what, what, what are they for? To make you want the product. See the movie, teasers, what else? To create emotion, yeah. Frustration. <laughs> They're designed for one thing. They're edited and they're created and somebody's thinking through. How can we present something that will, will, will make us want to get in on what's coming? 
I mean, that's what they're designed for, to go to the movie or download the game or get the book or, you know, buy the phone or, or, or whatever. They're all designed to get you interested. So you'll, you'll want to be in on the thing that's coming when it's available. And that Samsung trailer we just was watching, you know, is designed to inspire you with all that you could be, all that you could, could do. You could, you could even do the impossible like an ostrich soaring through the skies if you just bought their virtual reality headset. <laughs> Here's my question. Have you ever considered that God has an awesome trailer that's already in circulation and includes great footage? It includes real gameplay. And this trailer, it doesn't give away all the details, but it sure is inspiring. And it doesn't do the thing we hate trailers when they, when they include all the funny jokes in the entire movie in the movie trailer, and that's it. Like every funny moment was captured in that 45 seconds. It doesn't do that. This trailer is in full circulation. It's all around the world. And this trailer from God is designed to intrigue and invite and inspire everyone who sees it to get in on the real thing that's coming. God's got a trailer. And that trailer is us. We're the footage. The real footage of the upcoming movie. The the, the feature presentation when all things have been made new in Christ. We're the, the actual gameplay, as it were, that showcases what's to come when God's kingdom is, is finally and fully present in the world. The way that we live and love and work and play, the things we care about, the things we don't care about, all of it shows people a little preview of what's to come when Jesus has achieved full reconciliation in the world. And that's what we're going to explore today as we finish this five-week series that we've been on, on being images of God. Over the last four weeks, we've been reaching back into those earliest stories of Genesis. In Genesis 1, Genesis 2, we've kind of touched on Genesis 3, which is where we're going today. But mainly Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And we've been trying to understand who God has made us to be. What it means for us to be human. It's a pretty important question. And we discovered that God created human beings in his image so that we can actually reflect who God is to the world he loves. We're like mirrors that reflect that to the world. These first couple of chapters revealed an epic, sweeping, glorious story. We saw images of God who were worshiping their creator in in glorious abandon. We saw human beings who were filling and and, and ruling and subduing and, and serving and protecting God's creation. I see this. Royal caretakers. We reveled in God's good gifts of, of work and rest and even explored how even the rhythm of that in our lives is a reflection of God's care and goodness. And, and last week we got right to the core of it all where we explored how God is himself a divine community. Three beings in a, in a perfectly unified relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And how this God made us in his image as relational beings. And so that how we treat each other, how we love, how we serve, how we include others, how we, how we help, how we lay our lives down is really the, the clearest possible way that we're able to reflect who God is to the world he loves. It's an incredible vision. It's amazing. It's, it's good. It's delightful. It's compelling. And it's so, so, so not what we see on an everyday level. It's not what we see when we look around. Frankly, it's 
often not what we see when we look into our own lives. Yes, God might have created us to reveal Him in the way that we love and the way that we worship and the way that we care and the way that we work, but there must have been a few times in this series that you thought, Tom, have you looked around? Like, are you aware of what's going on in the world? Because you're casting a pretty beautiful picture here. You know, maybe that is what God intended. Maybe that is what He dreamed, but we have fallen far short of that. We kill instead of love. We exploit more than protect. We serve ourselves first before we serve anyone else. And we, and we work and work and work for meaningless gain that we can't keep. And then both people and the planet are paying the price for that. Can we even say, as we've been maintaining through the series, that we are still images of God? I mean, are we able to even have that? as a designation anymore, or is that something we've lost? Yeah, we can. God, in fact, himself insists that we are still images of him. And the moment we rejected God's ways, which we're going to explore today, the moment we rejected that, God immediately enacted a plan to bring restoration back to his creation. And that's where we need to go today as we finish the series. And as we do, I hope you're going to see that we're able to, because of this story God has given us, able to be both brutally honest and brilliantly hopeful. And I think that holds us in good stead. Yes, there's tragedy, but God is still at work. He's healing, he's restoring his world even now, and he's committed to making it right in the end. Well, let's start with how we can be brutally honest. In order to do that, we're going to return one last time to Genesis. We're going to go pushing past the story of our good creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to look into the cause of all the trouble that's come. This is found in Genesis 3. If you have a Bible, it's the third chapter in. There's, there's some Bibles around in the, in the seats. You can find it on your phones. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read through it, make a couple comments, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Pause. Let me make a few comments before we go on. What is happening here? The first thing we notice is that this serpent, undefined at this point, this serpent inserts mistrust into the mind of this woman. How does he do that? You must not eat. Is it true? You must not eat from any of the trees in the garden. Do you you hear that? God is holding out on you. And that's the the question he begins to grow in her mind. You know what? God is... He's not as good as you think he is. He's holding out on you. You know, if you really knew what was true, you'd realize that you're just under his thumb. Rather than 
the truth of the situation being that this good creator has, has created them and empowered them to rule the world, the serpent begins to insert mistrust. And isn't that how the devil continues to work today in our own lives? I mean, if he can get you to begin thinking that God has actually got something in mind for you that's worse <laughs> than you thought, that God's actually holding out on you, that he can't be trusted, if you can begin to see that in your mind and grow that so that you begin to look at the commands of God or the desires he has for you in sort of a suspicious way and think, oh, maybe God, maybe he's doing, maybe if I follow him, maybe I'm not really getting what I should be or whatever. The devil still works that way. He's doing that here. The second thing is that the serpent contradicts God's word. God said you're going to die if you eat this tree. And the serpent flat out says, no, you won't. That's not true. God's a liar. That's what he's saying. That's not true. Let me tell you what's really true, the serpent says. In fact, if you eat that, you'll be just like God. Now, here's the irony, kind of the crazy thing. Because we've already heard in this story so far, who were the human beings? They were images of God. They were the only beings walking around creation who were in, made in the image and the likeness of God already. So isn't it interesting that that's what this serpent uses to tell her that God is holding out on you? He begins to poke at that. Again, inserting more mistrust, but at this point, claiming to know not only more than them, but to be giving them the real truth that God has never given to them. And then we see, of course, that they both choose, in this case, to trust the word of the serpent over the word of God. To actually decide the serpent is more trustworthy, is giving us the real truth. And so I'm going to go with what he says. And in this particular case, instead of subduing the creation, creation, which they should have at that point, just enacted their authority and subdued the thing. Who doesn't want to subdue a snake every once in a while? Yeah, with a shovel. Um, but, you know, uh, subdue that thing. Instead of subduing it, they allowed, in that sense, the serpent to subdue them, to rule over them, to become the Lord and Master of them. They decide to reject God's direction and, and decide for themselves what's right and wrong. Well, it was an incredible mistake. Let's see what happened. So they eat the fruit. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. This is back in Genesis 3 now. And they realized they were naked. Remember, they hadn't noticed it before. At the end of chapter 2, they were both naked, but they weren't ashamed. It, didn't, it wasn't something that even crossed their minds. So immediately upon eating this fruit, they realized they're naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Say, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and you know the old joke goes, the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. It's a terrible joke, but it's so irresistible. Every time I talk in Genesis 3, oh man. 
I may not do that in the second service. We'll see. <laughs> What's the immediate effects of their action? The immediate effects is that they feel shame. Something breaks inside them. Something they don't even understand. Something breaks. They immediately feel shameful about who they are. And they, even, even the fact that they feel naked, all of a sudden they're exposed. And they, and they want to hide. And they want to hide from each other. And they want to hide from God. Because something has fractured the very fabric of their relationship with, with themselves and with each other and with God and with creation has been broken in this act of rebellion. They feel shame. They hide. And then they begin to shift blame when they're, when they're, when they're asked about it. You know, it, everyone says, well, the man blames the woman. But in, in effect, he blames God first. It's like, you gave her to me. You're the one who put her here, right? So he kind of blames God and blames her. And she blames. That's immediately what happens. They feel the shame. There's a brokenness in the relationship. And there's a desire to shift away responsibility for what has happened to someone else. Immediate actions, the, the immediate um, effects of their actions and their sin. Well, what does God do? Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, He starts with the serpent, then He goes to the woman, then He goes to the man. Kind of goes backwards. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl in your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity, which means hatred, between you and the woman between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe and with painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree of which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll grow your own food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. The man, or Adam, now named his wife Eve. But prior to that, she was never called that. Prior to the fall, she was never called Eve. The man, Adam, calls his wife, names his wife Eve, because she'd become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, you might be super familiar with this story. You know, read it, studied it. Or it might be new to you. Like, this might be like, well, I kind of heard something about, you know, some garden apple thing or, you know, or kind of our common pop culture or even some of our, 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 our big stories all allude to this. So you may be really familiar or less familiar. But here's the deal. The story of, of humanity's fall, as it's depicted here in Genesis 3, presents a brutally honest explanation of why the world is so messed up. And as a result of this story, and of course the whole story of Scripture, we can be really honest about the sin and the brokenness that we experience, yes, in our own lives, but also that we experience and see kind of writ large through history and through our global reality, in our relationships with each other, in our relationships with God's earth, 
and our relationship even within ourselves. When we dig deep into the story, we begin to answer, or at least hint at the answer, of some of our most difficult questions. Like, why is history littered with the bodies of women abused by men? Why do people seem to exploit God's creation more than care for it? How come it seems as though we're born off-kilter? Like something's wrong right from the start, even spawning, it seems, from the crib. Why do we insist on making our own rules? Sometimes we'll even make pretty good rules, but then we'll break them. And we do that over and over again, even when we know it hurts us and hurts others. Why does our work so often suck? Terribly. Why do our bodies break? How come marriage is so difficult? Doesn't matter how many times we try it. (laughs) That wasn't meant to be a sarcastic statement. It really is hard. Why do those we love so often disappoint us? How come life is so lonely and there's so many lonely people, even when they seem to be in contexts and in relationships where you'd think they wouldn't be lonely, but they are? And what about God? Why does he seem so elusive, so difficult at times, so hard to find? So mysterious. All these questions and more can be traced in some way back to this story. Back to human rebellion and sin. Our decision to reject God's good ways and then chart our own disastrous journey. And how these choices brought death. They they brought death into the world that God had designed to live. and, And then how our choices even today still do that. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it doesn't sugarcoat reality. You know, it doesn't dress it all up to make it look pretty or fake. Make them look better than they really are. The whole story of the Bible paints a vividly accurate picture of just how how bad we can be and how devastating our choices are. This is so important because with this book in hand, Christians are able to look at the world, able to look at the mess in our own lives, able to look at the things that are broken and going wrong in the world around us. And with this in hand, we're able to actually look at it truthfully and honestly, calling it what it is. Bad. (laughs) Evil. Wrong. Not the way it should be. And you know, we can take that for granted. I think we can forget that. Because not everyone is able to do that. Many other religions simply try to get around the conclusion that life can be really tough, like life is evil or things are bad. They, they, they get around it either by suggesting that everything we see really is just an illusion, an illusion, you know, that, that's one tact that's been taken many times, or, or sometimes by just sort of assigning everything that we see happening to this all-determining God who arbitrarily decided to make life hard for many and, and good for a few. Some philosophies that are circulating in our culture want to explain difficulties as a result of just how nature chooses what lives and what doesn't. Others maybe pursue an attitude of, well, what, what it means is we just got to do our best to make things good for us and good for our family and screw the rest. And then plenty of average folks, your friends and mine, maybe us, ourselves, will tell ourselves that, well, 
people are mostly good and life is great and everything will be okay. And my personal favorite, there's a reason for everything, which they kind of spin these cliches to try to help them feel better and make life manageable because it can really be hurtful and hard. Well, when you hold God's story as true, you don't need to spin tales. You don't need to fake it. Instead, we can be unflinchingly honest about how difficult and how painful life really is. And you can do it without losing hope. You can do it without losing hope. What do I mean? You see, though the evil and suffering in the world is a true part of our story, and we're able to acknowledge that, it's a true part of our story. It's not the whole story. The whole story is bigger and better than that. And here's the reason we can be hopeful. At the very moment that humans rejected God's good ways and brought death to us all, at that very moment, God kicked into plan B. And that plan B is the last one God's going to use. There's no plan C. That plan B is going to work. God's going to see it through. We hear hints of that right here in the earliest part of the story. You know, right while God is cursing the serpent, God promised that there would come a day when the offspring or the children, descendants, one of the descendants of this woman would crush the head of the serpent. And Bible uh, scholars and Bible readers and Christians down through the centuries have always seen this and the scripture itself as a cryptic prophecy of Jesus himself coming to destroy the work of the enemy. That through his life and his death and his resurrection, his ministry, even as he cast out demons and as he healed people and as he went to the cross, Jesus utterly crushed the head of this serpent once and for all. God's grace is also seen in his care for the man and the woman. Even though their sin caused incredible devastation, God makes an adequate covering for them to replace their faulty and frail attempts to cover up. I see in this the fact that God understands our shame. And he graciously covers it. But that covering came at a cost. We often glide right over that, not realizing that something actually had to die for them to be covered up. And even in this story, we see the very first sacrifice made for sin. First sacrifices where death immediately happened to cover their sin hinting at a time when God's own son would come, who would die, and would cover all of our sin for good. The story just rolls out from there. Even God's grace in keeping them away from the garden. It sounds harsh when you read it from one angle. But when you remember that God didn't want them to live forever in the state they were in, God first had to redeem and restore in order for eternal life to come so that at the end of the story in Revelation, there is the tree of life again and everyone has access to it. God's grace is even seen there. From there, the story rolls. Humans continue to make choices that cause greater hurt and harm within God's creation and yet God refuses to give us up. And there are times when he must have been very tempted. Well, in fact, he was. It's called the flood. But there were other times too where God looked and went, this is nuts. I'm not going to keep up with these guys. I'm just going to do them under. But at the end of the day, he refuses to give us up. He's committed to bringing his plan through. God works through a few individuals. That expands to a family, which then expands to a nation and ultimately results in bringing the son, Jesus, into the world through the nation of Israel. 
Humans had messed up, you understand. Humans had messed everything up, and humans had made the mess so they needed to clean it up. That's the logic of it. But the problem was we were so messed up that we couldn't fix the problem. You know what I mean? We, we, we couldn't actually fix the thing we'd broken. We couldn't fix ourselves. So then God did something entirely unexpected. God became one of us. God became human. So that in the end, human beings did fix the problem. <laughs> and we all, the rest of us, got fixed in the process. Jesus became the perfect human in our place, living the life that we were failing to live, we couldn't live, to be the image, the perfect image of God to the world that he loved. That's who Jesus was. And then making it possible for everything and everyone to be restored again. That's the story. That's the good news that we try to center ourselves around as a community, that we share, that we live out. Last week we talked about the Trinity, that perfect divine community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who decided to send the Son to rescue all the rest of creation. And this wasn't some rogue mission from one of the Godhead, you know. Sometimes different theologies have almost suggested that. Rather, this was a concerted, coordinated effort of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to make everything right. In one of the little letters that Paul wrote to some Christians in one of the ancient cities, the people um, in Colossae, Uh, He said this about Jesus. He said, God was pleased to have all his fullness. So all that makes up God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dwell in him. That's Jesus. Means that in Jesus, you get the Father, you get the Spirit. Everybody's there. He wasn't like a demigod or a half god or a mirage of God or a sort of God. Like that's not who we're dealing with. With Jesus, we're dealing with the full Godhead when you're dealing with Jesus, who's also fully human. So God is pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Did you get that? All of God was in Christ. And it was through Jesus that the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit are reconciling and restoring and rescuing and redeeming all things back to himself. This is good news. This is why we can be both brutally honest and brilliantly hopeful that this mess is not all there is, that God is actually doing something to make it right. In the book of Revelation, the Father who sat on the throne, the one who sits on the throne says, I am making everything new. That's how the whole story ends, is taking us there. Well, I just looked at the time and realized, holy smokes. You were wondering that too. Where's Tom going? When is he going to stop, right? What do I do? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. In 2 Corinthians 5, God said, in order for reconciliation to happen, I'm going to, tell my, I'm going to give my people the power to do it. Right? Because here's the deal. How is God making reconciliation in the world? He's doing it through Jesus, and how is Jesus doing it? He's doing it through us. He's doing it through us. We are Christ's ambassadors. I'll wrap it up with this. We are called to be the last... Just keep going, guys. Just do the whole thing to the end, actually. We're called to be living previews of the new creation work that God is doing. In other words, when when people around us see who we are, how we love and what we do, they're actually seeing... This is a challenging question, because are they? They're meant to see in living color what God wants to do for all the rest of creation.
for all the rest of the world. That's what they're meant to see when they see us interacting in our marriages, when they see the integrity of our work, when they see the way that we're pursuing reconciliation with a friend or a brother, when they see us crossing barriers to reach out to people of different ethnicities or people of different socioeconomic groups or people that are struggling, when they see the way that we love and live, we are meant to show them living previews of what God is wanting to do in all the relationships. And then we actively promote it. We actually say we're committed to that as a community of, of, of wherever there is brokenness, wherever there is hurt, wherever there, there's a sign that, that sin has gotten in there and has made a mess of things, whether it's in our own lives or around us, we receive that as God's own invitation to be his reconcilers, to be his ambassadors, to relentlessly pursue reconciliation in every relationship. All the things we've talked about in this series, all the things that are going on in our lives, all the things we see around us in the world, we can be honest about them. But in that, to hear the invitation of God to be his reconcilers, his ambassadors, his living previews of what he wants to do in the whole world. That's our vision as a church. You know, We want to be the kind of community that says, we take reconciliation so seriously, we're going to bank our whole life on it. <laughs> we're going to make sure that we as a community are... are relentlessly pursuing reconciliation in every relationship, caring for creation, caring for the poor, reaching out to the marginalized, caring for our neighbor, witnessing to who Jesus is and what he wants to do in our families and in our workplaces and in our schools and all around us and being the kind of community that models that. Not not that we're perfect, but we're letting Jesus heal us and we're inviting everyone to consider how he might also heal them. This is the vision that God has given to us. We're called as a community to help people find and follow Jesus because we believe that it's only in Jesus that people will receive healing and reconciliation. That God's plan and his commitment to see it through, he's good for it. He's good for it. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for your commitment to see us reconciled to your Father, to see healing come to the broken. Thank you for stepping in to be that covering for us, to be our ruler, to be the one who makes everything right. Thank you for the new creation you've spawned in us and our letting roll out from us to the world. May we catch hold of this vision, Lord, so that we can be your ambassadors for the sake of the world that you love. May we leave today reflecting your goodness, your care, and your love in every relationship and into every area of brokenness in this world. In your name we pray. Amen. Go in grace. I do apologize if I'm a little over. But hey, when you get preaching sometimes. Hope you can stay for coffee. God bless you.